Uh, let me pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, please uh, teach us today from your word. Uh, help me to speak faithfully and clearly. Uh, help us to be attentive and humble as we come to your word, uh, willing to be moulded and shaped by it. Uh, we've just heard of people uh, in another culture uh, who need to be moulded and shaped by your word in particular ways. And perhaps it's tempting for us to, to go, oh, I can't believe that they wouldn't get that. And yet we know, Lord, that there are areas of our culture and, and our own lives that are, just, that are just equally blind spots for us, uh, that we're not willing or unaware of, of how we need to be shaped by your word. And so I pray this night that you would give us great humility before your word and that you would change us and make us more like your son. Amen. Uh, so uh, we've been uh, looking uh, through this uh, letter that Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus called Ephesians, and we're coming to the end, and this week and next week, uh, we're going to be looking at these two passages, or sort of one passage we're breaking into two sections, uh, and it's really all about uh, spiritual warfare, uh, which Warwick uh, picked up in the kids' talk uh, brilliantly in that spontaneous manner. And uh, of course, in most parts of the world, uh, in Africa, in South America, in Asia, uh, probably in the Pacific Island uh, nations that we've heard about today, uh, this whole idea that there's a spiritual realm and that there's a war going on in that realm between good and evil forces, right? That whole idea is just accepted. Well, of course that's what's going on. Right, but I understand that uh, for lots of people here in Melbourne and probably for some of you here today, uh, that this whole idea that there's a spiritual realm with good and evil forces, uh, well, at best, it's kind of a fanciful idea, right? It's the world of Star Wars or Harry Potter, like not the real world, right? It's, a, it's at best a fanciful idea, and at worst, it's a dangerous idea. So today and next week, we're diving right into this topic, and we're going to do that today under the headings of, uh, if I'm going to talk about spiritual warfare or a fight, uh, who is it that we fight, uh, what is it that we fight, and how do we fight? So three, three headings. So first, who, uh, or should I say whom? You know, some of you perhaps are grammar Nazis here, right? Whom, uh, whom do we fight? I don't really understand when, who and whom is appropriate, but I think this is one of those situations. Anyway, have a look at verse 12 there. Uh, look, have a look at verse 12. Paul says, our struggle, right, that that's our fight, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Right? So, so in saying that our struggle's not against flesh and blood, Paul's not saying that we never come across uh, evil in this world uh, that has taken on a flesh and blood form. Like, that's not what he's saying. Right? Like Paul knows what it is to experience flesh and blood evil. Right? Paul's someone who was persecuted and imprisoned and flogged. Uh, he was stoned for being a Christian. That's a real part of his life, flesh and blood, evil. But what he's saying here is that when evil does take on a flesh and blood form, whether it be in abuse or violence, as we've just heard about, in war, in cruelty, in racism, in discrimination, like whatever it is, it's never just flesh and blood. It's never that simple. The cause of that evil... Uh, is never exclusively in this world, in the material world, in the, the physical realm. 
by Paul saying that there's always some evil spiritual power uh, that's at work behind the scenes. And now, as I said at the start, most of us have problems with that. Because in our mindsets, right, a Western mindset, a, a modern mindset, uh, we pretty much expect everything to have a natural cause. So it follows that uh, all evil in this world must also have a natural cause. It might be a psychological cause. Well, you hear this, this person uh, wasn't parented right when they were growing up. Right? They were abused, they, they, were, they were damaged in some way. Right, so it's a psychological cause. It could be a sociological cause. Right? It's the education system, the, the economic system, the political system. Like that's what the problem is. It could be a physiological cause. Right? This thing, it's a genetic disorder. It's a pathology of some kind. It's a, it's a chemical imbalance. Now, I'm not saying that none of those things are true. Right? They are true and they're totally useful categories to think in. Uh, But uh, I guess what Paul's saying here uh, is that uh, our mindset, or I guess that's not what Paul's saying, this is what I'm saying, right? Our mindset uh, is that we think that if there's any evil in this world, there has to be a natural cause, psychological, sociological, physiological, right? And the reason for that is, uh, is if there's not a natural cause, uh, how are we supposed to find out what the problem is and fix it ourselves? Uh, That's how we think. And the only problem with this mindset that everything has to be caused from within this world is it, it just doesn't work. That's a pretty big problem, right? Well, let's go with the, the, the psychological explanation. Right? People, uh, they do all sorts of horrible things, even perhaps evil things, if you can bring yourself to say that, uh, because they're psychologically damaged. That, that's the main explanation. Uh, I was thinking about this recently uh, because Gabby and I watched the movie The Silence of the Lambs, a pretty dark movie. It's on Netflix. And uh, I never actually realised that the movie is based on a book uh, by a guy named Thomas Harris. Uh, And so after we watched the movie, I got online and and I I found a copy of the book and I discovered an amazing conversation that was actually cut from the movie. Uh, It's when Officer Starling, the FBI agent, uh, she's meeting uh, Dr Hannibal Lecter, the crazy serial killer, uh, for, for the very first time. Uh, and so uh, her big, kind of the big question in her mind is what made this guy become a serial killer? How, how did that happen? And so she, she says to him, uh, what happened to you? And his response is really interesting. He says, nothing happened to me. I happened. You can't just reduce me to a set of influences, he says. He says, you've given up on good and evil, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. And here's the kicker, right? Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say that I'm evil? Can you stand to say that I'm evil? We we can't answer that question. It's just too judgmental. It implies a value judgment on someone, doesn't it? To to say that it's evil. There's no one in this world who's evil. They're just psychologically damaged. They're victims of a particular pathology. I'm not saying those things don't exist, but I do think that that explanation is very convenient for, for most of us, including me, who've never looked in the face of real evil. 
kind of works well. Harder to say if you have seen real evil face to face. Uh, Other people say, look, sure, uh, people do a whole lot of horrible things uh, and it might not just be psychological, uh, but it's because perhaps uh, they're not educated properly. Like we've just got to kind of civilise people. If we could do that, it would be okay. Uh, And there's some truth in that. Like that's why I just said. Like we're right behind Channels of Hope. Essentially a a re-education program around the teachings of the scriptures. All for it. But we've also got to recognise that this is what lots of people were saying at the start of the 20th century. We've just got to educate people. And then we had the social Darwinism, eugenics, the Second World War, the Holocaust, the Final Solution. Like, look at the 20th century. We had lots of very well-educated but evil people. Smart people who used all their intelligence to make dangerous bombs. Education in and of itself is not everything. Uh, Other people said, uh, perhaps this is topical after Fidel Castro yesterday, right? About all the evils in the world, right? It's a particular economic system. Get rid of the evils of capitalism. Get rid of communism. Right? But the reality is that both those systems have led to lots of evil. I don't know, I hope you can see what I'm trying to do here. Every time we try to identify one cause of evil in this world, it just doesn't work. Christianity doesn't have that problem. Like That's what we're seeing in today's passage. Because Christianity says there's evil in this world because two sorts of beings that God created, humans and angels, both rebelled against God. The angels who rebelled uh, became personal, supernatural, evil beings. uh, The devil and his demons. Uh, And the human beings who rebelled, people like us, uh, we became people who have sin and evil in our own hearts. Uh, So this is important. Christianity says, sure, uh, all sorts of factors in this world uh, can aggravate, can exacerbate the evil in our hearts. That's totally true. But those things don't cause evil. The evil is caused by uh, the devil and his demons doing everything they can to aggravate and exacerbate the evil that's already in our hearts because we've rebelled against God. Now, I understand some of you also, I'm just trying to lay some groundwork here, right? There's got to be stuff happening outside of this physical realm. Uh, and now, I, I get that some of you uh, might be okay with that. Like, I might be able to convince you uh, that there's an evil spiritual force. Like, there's the yin and the yang. There, there's kind of the dark side of the force in Star Wars. Like, you might get that. Uh, but this whole idea that there's an actual devil, like an evil, personatural, uh, an evil uh, personal supernatural being, that, that, that's just too hard to believe. Right, so, so let me just, uh, if that's you, uh, let me uh, give you something to think about. Like some of you are saying it's irrational, uh, it's illogical. Well, let, let me at least put this to you. I'm wondering if you can pr- pr- prove to me uh, using pure reason, like pure logical argument, uh, that a personal, supernatural and good being can't exist. I prove to me using logic and reason that God can't exist. No one can prove that. 
And so surely it's at least logically possible that a personal supernatural evil being, the devil, could exist. Like you can't close the door purely by saying it's illogical, it's irrational. And if it's possible, right, if, if the Bible's right about this, if Paul's right in this verse, right, that our struggle in this world is against the evil in our own hearts and the evil in the spiritual realm, right, if that's true, it's incredibly important. Right, because it means that, that our only hope of fighting evil, of, of combating evil in an ultimate sense, it will not be found in this world, but in the God who's powerful enough to change people's hearts and to defeat spiritual evil. It forces us to look outside of this world. So that's who we fight. I don't know if I've convinced you, but we fight the devil and his evil spiritual forces. That's what Paul's saying. What about what we fight? Well, it's there in verse 11. Have a look in verse 11. Paul says, We take our stand against the devil's evil schemes. I know he says other things here, but this phrase is what I'm zooming in on. Rather, the word schemes is sometimes translated as devices or strategies. The picture is that the devil's got a whole armory of strategies that he's going to throw at us. But in general, you could summarise these strategies of the devil as having two errors that he wants us to fall into, to slip into. And two strategies that we have to fight against. So let me give uh, the two errors. They're, they're actually kind of in these verses, uh, at least implicitly. Because what's clear here is that Paul doesn't want us to underestimate the devil. Well, we've got to take the devil seriously. Well, that's why he says, uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, I didn't know this until I was looking at, at during the week. Uh, but that word struggle there... Uh, is the word for wrestling someone with your bare hands. Some of you probably knew that, right? But I didn't know it during the week. Uh, And uh, uh, it really communicates how serious this battle is, doesn't it? Like thinking in the context of an armour of God with shields and uh, and swords and that kind of thing, arrows. If someone's uh, shooting arrows at you, uh, you're in a battle. If someone's fighting you with a sword, you're in a battle. But if you're rolling around on the ground, wrestling with someone with your bare hands, like it's the, really the, the kind of life and death moment. Like this is how serious this is. Your life is, is hanging in the balance, Paul's saying. So Paul says you, you must never underestimate the devil. This is a real and powerful struggle. On the other hand, he says don't overestimate the devil. You see that? Don't, don't, don't be afraid. Don't, don't think you have to run away. Be strong in the Lord, Paul says. The one who, who's ascended on high and, and is exalted over every spiritual power. Be, be strong in his power and you will stand, Paul says. Don't be afraid. Don't underestimate the devil, but don't overestimate the devil. Uh, I was thinking about this in part because I'm a bit of a, a C.S. Lewis kind of fan and I've read his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, and in the, in the very first paragraph of that, he says that there are two equal and opposite errors that you can fall into when it comes to the devil and, and his demons. Uh, on the one hand, you can overestimate his power, uh, which Lewis says is about having an excessive and really unhealthy interest in the whole demonic space. Right? You're just getting caught up in it. 
But on the other hand, you can underestimate his power, right? Or worse, uh, think that he doesn't even exist. Right? And the problem with both those errors, which the devil loves us to fall into, is that they both lead to a really simplistic understanding of how spiritual evil's at work. Uh, for example, uh, like you might have met uh, some Christians who pretty much want to say that everything's the devil. Like you tell them that you're struggling with uh, anger, uh, that you're depressed, and they're just kind of laying on hands, like cast out the spirit of anger, cast out the spirit of depression. And you're kind of like, well, what about, what about my stressful job? Like, do you, do you think I should change jobs? What about the way I was raised? Like, maybe I should talk to someone about that. Do you think I should forgive that person that I'm really angry and bitter at? Maybe I should get some medication. Oh, no, 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 it's, it's all the devil. Like, let's pray and have... No, I'm caricaturing, right? But that's one extreme. Oh, on the other hand, you've got lots of people, uh, some of them who call themselves Christians, perhaps some of you here today, uh, who don't seem to believe in the devil at all. It's just illogical, ridiculous. And Lewis says that the devil and his demons are absolutely delighted with both those errors. Right? Because they both lead to this really simplistic understanding of how the devil's evil schemes are at work. So we've got to steer clear of those errors. Right? Don't underestimate the devil, don't overestimate the devil. Uh, second, uh, uh, broadly speaking, the devil has uh, the two main strategies in his evil schemes. Uh, some of you might uh, have heard uh, that the Greek name devil is closely related to the word for lying, right? which is why we put on the helmet of salvation and shield of faith and trust. Anyway, we'll talk about that next week. Right, but this is important, I think, when we think about this whole space of spiritual warfare, a demonic activity, uh, because most of us perhaps have watched a whole lot of supernatural, uh, maybe you've seen uh, The Exorcist, uh, and you've kind of got in your head that if the devil's involved with, someone, uh, with something or someone, uh, the person's kind of going to be frothing at the mouth, maybe their head's spinning around, you know, like they're, they're kind of like a rabid dog or something, like that's, that's how the devil's at work. Uh, and outside of that, I don't know, like does he exist? Right, but, but, but it's really important to understand that, that the devil might work in that way, but the main way he works is by lying to us. It's in his name. He's a liar. You remember Jesus in John chapter 8. He says the devil is the father of lies. When, when the devil lies, he's speaking his native language, Jesus says. So it's really by lying to us that the devil uh, tries to aggravate uh, the, the sinful desires in our hearts. And he lies to us in these two main ways. I, I, I should clarify, I'm not saying that you, you literally hear the devil's voice. I'm just saying that the devil uh, actually has a way of promoting in your heart and in my heart uh, particular patterns of thinking, particular patterns of self-talk uh, that are full of lies. And the two ways he does that, uh, broadly speaking, are temptation and accusation. I got this from a, a book that uh, pretty much everyone who's written a bunch on this chapter, on um, this passage, refers to. Uh, it's a book written by a guy named uh, Thomas Brooks, uh, and he was a pastor uh, way back in the 17th century. Uh, and he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. 
Uh, you can Google it. Uh, it just kind of come up for free on a whole bunch of websites. Uh, and I read most of it during the week. Uh, but in it, he lists something like 70 strategies that the devil has. And broadly, they, they f- fall into these two groups, temptations and accusations. Uh, so I'm not going to go through all 70. Uh, you'll be pleased to know. But we'll just pick up a few kind of ways in which the devil tempts us and a few ways in which he accuses us. These are under the devil's evil schemes, right? First, uh, the devil uh, tempts you into sin, tempts us into sin. Uh, Brooke says, by showing us the bait and hiding the hook. Right? So the, the devil shows you the, the, the incredible pleasure of sin. It's going to be so good. Uh, but he hides the hook, right? the, the misery of sin. Now, this is his oldest trick. I remember Genesis 3. He said to Eve, you won't die when you eat that fruit. Like God just knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him. Right? There's the bait. It's going to be amazing. You'll be like God. It's the pleasure of sin. Of course, he hides the hook. Right? The misery of sin. Adam and Eve cast out of God's presence. Now, that's what the devil does. Here's another one. The devil uh, is kind of pretty savvy in getting us to reframe our sin as something even virtuous. Right? So, so you say to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm not really a greedy person. I just like to save. Right? I'm not a nosy person. I'm just really concerned for people. I don't have a problem with alcohol. I just like to party a lot. Right, as you see, the devil gets us to kind of reframe our sin as something virtuous. Or third, he shows us uh, the sins of other people, right? people who, who we consider to be much worse than us. And so you say to yourself, sure, oh, I'm not perfect, like I'll concede that, but at least I'm not as bad as that person. Or uh, the devil makes you to respond to uh, the suffering you've experienced in life uh, by uh, being filled with a whole lot of self-pity. Uh, so you think to yourself, uh, I'm tired, I'm stressed, oh, I'm sacrificing so much in my life. Uh, and I know this particular thing that I want to do is wrong, uh, but I deserve it. Right? And so he fills us with self-pity, so we just feel that we deserve to act in these ways. Or the devil kind of comes to you and he whispers in your ear, Aaron, Aaron, look at all those people who aren't Christians. Look at, it, look at how great their life is. Look at how much fun they're having. Like really, does it, does it really pay off to be faithful to God? Or simply the devil convinces us that sin uh, just isn't that serious. We don't have to avoid it. Like, Aaron, don't be so uptight. Like, don't be like those overly conservative Christians. Those ones, like, they're all kind of concerned about sin. They can't handle being around sinners. Right, Jesus, I mean, Jesus. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Like, we should all be in the pub. Right, so, so I'm not saying it's wrong to be in the pub, right? But, but like, we can develop a habit of playing with sin thinking it's not serious. 
Oh, those are just some of the ways, as I said, there's like 70 of them in this book, right? But these are some of the ways uh, the devil's, uh, in the devil's evil schemes uh, when it comes to temptation. Uh, what about accusation? Well, I'll just give you four things that the devil does. Uh, first, uh, the devil will come to you and, and he'll accuse you uh, so that you uh, focus on your sin rather than on Christ. Uh, last week we talked a little bit about parenting uh, and I've read uh, some stuff in parenting uh, literature uh, that you should try to give your kids four or five encouragements for every criticism. I, I don't know how I go with that, but, uh, but the point is that it's the criticisms that really stick in their mind. But likewise, Thomas Brooks says uh, that for every look that you take at your sin, you have to take five looks at Christ. Like the devil uh, does everything he can to stop that happening. So you end up feeling incredibly discouraged because you can't get past looking at your sin. You're filled with despair. Second, the devil accuses you by getting you to focus on a false definition of faith. So he says to me, like he says, Aaron, how on earth can you say that you're a Christian, that you're a person of faith? Like faith is having complete assurance of God's love. Right, faith is, is being completely assured that your sins have been forgiven. Right? You don't have that. Maybe you don't even have faith at all. So he reframes faith so that we feel discouraged, confused, filled with doubt. A third, he accuses us by uh, getting us to focus on our suffering. Look at your suffering, he says. Look at how God's not answering your prayers. Look at how your life is just one shattered hope and dream after another. But surely if God really loved you, he wouldn't treat you like that. Right? And fourth, the devil accuses you by getting you to focus on your feelings. He might say something like, do you remember when you first became a Christian? You were so full of joy, weren't you? And don't you think if you were a real Christian, that joy would have kept going? And so you get busy, really busy, trying to generate all these particular feelings rather than focusing on Christ, who's the source of those feelings. This is how the devil, he kind of plays us. He knows all your particular weaknesses. He knows uh, the sinful tendencies in your heart. He knows which buttons to press. He knows which strings to pull. This is the devil's evil schemes. This is what we're fighting against, Paul says. So how do we fight? Well, as I said, this is mainly for next week. Uh, But just two uh, uh, intro things today. Uh, the first way that you fight is by trying to identify exactly, you know, kind of exactly what strategies the devil uh, might be using against you. Know your enemy. That's that's a Chinese guy, isn't it? Uh, anyway, oh, so you could look up that book, uh, Google it, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, uh, and you can even if you skim it, like if you're anything like me, as you read it, uh, particular strategies will jump off the page. You'll be like, that, that, that's what happens to me. 
And so I realised a while ago that for me, Sunday nights after church is a danger zone for temptation. Very dangerous time, spiritually. Because the devil comes to me and he says, Aaron, uh, you, know, you know, you've worked so hard for God today. You've really spent yourself in God's service. And, and you're tired. Uh, you know, the week's ahead. You know what you deserve? You know what you really need? You need to sin like this. I mean, after a while, uh, the devil tried that strategy quite, quite a lot and, and I didn't you know, succeed a whole lot, but I did start to see it coming after a while. And in my experience, uh, the devil uh, has actually moved on to other things. He knows that that particular strategy is not working anymore. At least not as much as it used to. But what about you? Right? Maybe you should pray about this this week. Have a think about it. Ask someone who knows you well. What particular strategies is the devil using against you? What are his, and his arsenal of evil schemes? Uh, the second thing, uh, which, are, which we'll talk about a whole lot next week, uh, is that we've got to put on the armour of God, uh, which is the gospel. So in verse 13, Paul says, Therefore put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you might be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, uh, to stand. So having in your mind that the two things the devil does, broadly speaking, is that he tempts us and he accuses us. So in temptation, what's the devil really trying to do? When he's tempting you, he's trying to get you to have a kind of overblown sense of how loving God is. So you give in to sin, like God will forgive me no matter what I do. In accusing you, he's trying to get you to have an overblown sense of how holy God is. God is so holy, he could never love someone like you. He'd never forgive someone like you. And this is how the armour of God works, right? Because if you believe the gospel, right? If you put on uh, the armour of the gospel, uh, you have two truths in your head all the time. Uh, The first truth you've got in your head is that, yes, you are a sinner. Like That's in your head. Your sinful record is so bad that Christ, the only one who ever had a perfect record, had to die for you. He had to die. Like If you understand that, if you arm yourself with that truth, it'll go a long way to helping with temptation. Because if you look at Christ and see that because of your sin, he had to to be mocked and whipped and beaten and crucified. If you see that, how could you ever say that sin isn't serious? How could you ever just toy with sin? How could you ever say that God in his holiness wouldn't judge sin? You'll never have an overblown sense of God's love if you know that you're a sinner and that Christ had to die for you. On the other hand, if you believe the gospel, you also know that in God's eyes, you're no longer a sinner. You're not a sinner anymore. You're a saint. You're innocent and blameless and perfect in God's sight, right? Because you believe that Christ died on the cross for your entire sinful record, right? It doesn't matter how bad it is and that his perfect record has been transferred to you. You've been clothed in that. So by faith in him, you're accepted by God. You're adopted into God's family as his precious child, a child that he loves, And so the more you understand that, the more you'll be able to fight the devil's accusations. When he comes to you and he accuses you of being a rotten sinner that God could never love, 
rather than buying into that lie, uh, you might say something like this. Uh, You might say, you're right, I am a sinner. Uh, But all my sins have been paid for by Christ's death on the cross. Right? And don't try to tell me that there's a little bit more to be paid. Right? Because if you do, I'll lift my eyes up and I'll see my Lord Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of his Father. And why does my Heavenly Father allow him to sit there? Because his work is finished. Every sin has been paid for. My sins have been completely paid for. And so don't try to fill me with doubt or discouragement or despair. Because my Lord Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to pay the debt for all my sins on the cross. And you don't have to be that eloquent. Like that's my kind of modernisation of Thomas Brooks. He's a much better pastor than me. And you don't have to use that kind of language. But the truth is, if you want to stand firm against the devil's evil schemes... You have to have the great truths of the gospel. Uh, You have to put on these truths. You have to arm yourself with these truths every day. They are the armour of God. We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, I do pray uh, that this word uh, that we've heard today uh, would take root in our hearts uh, for your glory. Uh, Help us not to dismiss it quickly because it uh, contains stuff that is perhaps a bit foreign, uh, maybe outside of our experience. Uh, Help us uh, to be aware that there is this spiritual realm and help us to be aware uh, increasingly of the devil's evil schemes in our own life. Uh, Help us not to uh, underestimate his power or think that he doesn't exist at all and help us not to overestimate his power and be in fear because we know that in the Lord Jesus we have the one who is all-conquering over every spiritual power. Uh, Help us uh, to know ourselves and what particular uh, evil schemes the devil might be using to try and play us Uh, and help us to put on the armour of God which tells us that we were uh, uh, so sinful uh, that Christ had to die for us. We pray we'd believe that deeply and so we would always take sin seriously. Uh, But we're also so loved that that Christ was willing to die for us and so that we wouldn't uh, be rocked or uh, insecure when Satan comes at us with accusations. Uh, Please, Father, make these truths uh, take root deep in our hearts for your glory. Amen. We're going to stand and sing in response um, before the throne of God above. Uh, Please stand.